So I believe it was the fall of 1994. It was my senior year uh, in high school. I was driving home from school, uh, and there was an intersection near my house. My high school was only about four or five miles from my house. Uh, drive up Minor Parkway. Minor High School was my high school. You drive up Minor Parkway, hit an intersection, and turn left to go into Adamsville, which is where I lived. Well, I wasn't paying attention. The light was um, green, but I didn't have the arrow. And so I rolled right through the light. I look up, and there's a car barreling toward the passenger side of my car. Too late to stop. Too late to do anything about it. All I could do was brace for impact. And he T-boned me, spun my car around, immediately totaled. I knew it was totaled. Uh, messed up my car. Um, so then, you know, but I was okay. And, and thankfully, no one was with me because it, it would have been really bad had somebody been with me. But I knew the minute I turned, looked up, saw that other car coming, it was actually a small truck, I knew I was headed for trouble. Have you ever had that feeling? You know trouble's coming. It may not be a car wreck, right? It may be something completely different, but you know trouble's coming, but there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. No way to avoid it. You know it's about whatever it is. It's about to happen. You know it's going to be bad, and all you can do is brace for impact. Well, that happens in life, doesn't it? At several points in your life, you're going to be faced, we all are going to be faced with those situations, those circumstances, where you know something's coming, you know it's not going to be fun, you know it's going to be hard, you can't change the circumstances, but the only thing you can do is choose how you react to those circumstances. And over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be in a series that shows us that even though life is like that sometimes, even though we are faced with challenging circumstances every day, by the way, some bigger than others, but we're faced with those circumstances every day, God says that we can face our future with confidence, that we know we have a future in Him. We're going to be in a series, a four-week series, uh, through the month of August called Hope, the Assurance to Face Your Future. And it's based on the verse that you just saw in that video, Jeremiah 29, 11. That's going to be our theme verse for the next four weeks. For I know the plans that I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, and to give you a hope and a future. And yes, that was directed to the nation of Israel at a certain time and a certain place, but Scripture bears out the truth that that verse is true for all of God's children. He has a plan for us. And, and by the way, plans to prosper you, that doesn't mean maybe that you'll be rich. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. This is not name it, claim it, uh, health and wealth prosper is in terms of spiritually, to grow you spiritually, to develop you spiritually, to use you, to prosper in terms of growth in the kingdom of God. Plans for your welfare not to harm you. God is not going to harm you. Life may harm you. Life may cause you pain, but God is going to protect you until it's time to bring you home if you are his. He will take care of you. Ultimately, he will provide for all of our needs because he provides for our greatest need, which is the need for forgiveness of sin. And Jesus Christ died on the cross so that your sin could be forgiven, and that is the greatest need that any of us have. And because he has done that, for those of us who live in him, we now have a future, and we can have confidence 
assurance in the present because of the future that God has provided for us. The purpose of this series is to live with assurance that can only be found in knowing Christ and fulfilling his plan for my life. You put yourself in that last second to last word in your life. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you can find assurance. You can live with assurance. But the only way you can do that is if Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior first, and then you live your life, you spend your life fulfilling the purpose that he has for you. And he does have a purpose for you. Today we're going to begin in 1 Samuel 30. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 30. Someone has said, here's a positive outlook on life for you, okay? You ready? Someone has said we're either in a mess, coming out of a mess, or headed for a mess. That's a positive viewpoint, right? It makes you feel good. You're headed for a mess if you're not in one now. Maybe it's not the peppy speech that you would like today, but it's still true, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's just reality. Life gets messy sometimes. Life gets difficult sometimes. But you can be prepared for it, and you can endure. Now, today we're going to see David, familiar character in the Bible, a man after God's own heart. We're going to see him in the middle of a mess. But we're also going to see that God still has a plan for him, even though he finds himself in the middle of the mess. The mess that he finds himself is not the end story for David. In fact... God even uses the mess that David is in to accomplish his purpose for David, something David is totally unaware of at the time. In 1 Samuel, it covers about 110 to 115 years, the entire book. We see King Saul, who was on the throne for 32 years until he was 72 years old. David was immensely popular, which made Saul jealous, and so Saul wants to kill David. And we find ourselves, matter of fact, God anoints David the next king of Israel while Saul is still on the throne. That should have been his son, Jonathan. Saul becomes, because of David's fame, because of David's notoriety, Saul becomes immensely jealous of David to the point to where he wants him dead. So when we read in 1 Samuel 30, David is actually on the run. He's had to run for his life. Because Saul is wanting to kill him. So we pick up there and we find David in in 1 Samuel 30 about to face a pretty big mess. And we learn some lessons from that. First is this. David walks into a mess. And he learns there that God's plan may include a divine interruption in your life. David's about to experience a divine interruption. He doesn't know it. Even when it happens, he doesn't know it's a divine interruption. But he figures out. Pretty quickly, what that is, that it is. And, and there are going to be times in our lives that we face that. Now, David had to run from Saul into enemy territory. He goes on the run, and the only place he has to run is into the enemy territory of the Philistines. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and the Philistines didn't get along very well, okay? Um, they had a history. And so that's how desperate David is. He's running from Saul, and he actually runs into the enemy territory to to save his life. But God has a different plan, and he wants to strengthen his faith. So David's trying to outrun his problems, 
But God wants to strengthen David's faith, and David's going to figure that out. So what's the application here immediately? Well, David is trying to run from his problems here, okay? Now, he did have to run from his life, but there is an element here where he's trying to escape his problems. That one of the applications we can take away from that is you can't hide forever, and you can't hide from God at all, okay? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'll go ahead and apologize. I usually get, get permission to share stories about my kids. Gracie, I'm sorry, wherever you are, this isn't too embarrassing. When she was little, we moved to Pinson, Alabama. It was uh, about 2007, I think, when we moved there, okay? So Gracie was two years old at the time. Um, and we, Mandy has always worked somewhat there more, then more than others part-time. She worked a few days a week, and this was Friday. It was my day off, which has always been Daddy Day. We always do fun stuff. We, uh, they have school, but we go out, we get treats, all that kind of stuff. You know, I buy my children's love with sugar, and I'm okay with that. But we were playing hide-and-seek. Gracie's really small, okay? We're playing hide-and-seek. We just moved into this house. It's a pretty big house. And uh, remember, she's two years old. We had a love seat in our dining room at the time. I don't remember why. I don't know if we were shifting furniture or getting rid of a love seat. But I'm counting in the other room. She goes and hides. And her idea of hiding at two years old was she was facing the backside of the love seat with her head buried. And she figured as long as she couldn't see anything, I couldn't see her. Although I could see her, the whole backside of her body, right? She's just like this, face down. But, but it was so funny because that's a two-year-old's perspective, right? As long as I can't see you, you can't see me. But I can see her perfectly. And it occurs to me that whenever we try to hide from God, that's kind of how he looks at it. What are you doing? I can see you perfectly. You think you're hiding from me, but you're not. And we may think we're hiding from God. And we may think we're getting away with whatever we're doing. And David did some pretty, pretty sketchy things, as we're going to see. But you're never truly, you're never able to hide from God at all. He knows where you are, what you're doing, everything that you've done. Yet he loves you anyway. And he still has a plan for you. If you're in sin and turn to him in repentance, he will accept you. He will forgive you. And he will use you uh, for his kingdom. In 1 Samuel 29, we see the Philistines. If you back up a chapter, we see the Philistines preparing for attack. They are getting together. Now, David is actually planning to fight with them, which is crazy when you know the history, right? But he's planning to fight with them. them. So they, they gather. Verse 1 of 29 tells us that they, the entire Philistine army was mobilized at Aphek. The enemy king of Gath, Achish, loved David, but his Philistine commander said, no way, no how, this guy's going with us into battle. You've got to tell him to get out of here. So that's what he does. He has to ask David to leave. Look at verse 10 of chapter 29. So get up. This is what uh, um, Achish tells David. So get up early in the morning, you and your masters, servants who came with you. When you've all gotten up early, uh, go as soon as it's light. He says, you got to go. You know, David thinks this is all circumstantial, but it was actually a part of God's plan. So David heads back to Ziklag. A lot of fun names today in this passage. Where the families of he and his men are staying. That's where they're staying at the time. So they go back to their families. Um, his men uh, go with him. Uh, they were kept away from the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. That, and here's the deal. God's watching over David, right? He's already anointed him the next king. And what David doesn't know is this is the battle that's going to end Saul's life. And prepare the way for David 
to take the throne. David's unaware of that, though. His own desire to save his people from the Philistines was at least for now blocked. But his life is saved so that he can fulfill the plan that God has for him. God's in complete control. You know, a lot of times in life, God accomplishes, well, most times, he accomplishes his plan in ways that we don't expect. Because we don't have his mind, we don't see the big picture, and what we think is best, a lot of times, usually isn't, right? We think we know what's supposed to happen, the future that's supposed to take place, but God has a different plan. David thinks the best way for him to accomplish his purpose is to go into battle. He thinks that that the best thing for he and the people, uh, his men that are following him, is for him to be there. But God has a different plan. God's working a plan that David knows to be king, but in a way that David doesn't expect. Now... Everything works, and this is a lesson, everything works together according to God's plan here. But that doesn't mean, this is a trap we fall into, that doesn't mean that everything was trouble-free. There were plenty of problems. David is still about to walk into a huge mess that he really created on his own because of his actions. And here's where we learn that God's people may never get away from problems. If anyone has ever told you that, hey, if you'll just give your life to Christ, everything will be easy from now on, they have lied to you. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean your problems vanish. In some ways, you will have more problems because it is difficult to live for Christ in this fallen and broken culture, and it's always been that way. Yes, things are bad right now in our culture, and I don't minimize anything that's going on. But listen, as far back as the beginning of the church, it was difficult, even more difficult in many ways, to live for Christ. And at many points across places across the world, people live for Christ at risk to their own lives. And they meet on, on Sunday, or they worship together in a house, or in a building, or in a shack. And I've been in some of those situations where they know that if they're caught, they could be thrown in jail at the very least or killed at the very worst. And, and that, that's, that, that is life. There are difficult aspects to living for Christ, but there's also great joy and there's purpose and your eternity is secure and knowing your creator all make it more than worth it. And one day knowing that we will see him face to face. But David's about to experience some issues here. He and his men cover 60 miles or so from Aphek to to Ziklag in just over two days, which is pretty good, you know, if you're marching, right? They cover 60 miles. Now, while they're in Aphek, David was kind of acting as a spy of sorts. He had befriended Saul's enemies. Remember, he's running from Saul. So this is sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of thing going on, right? He befriends Saul's enemies uh, to preserve he and his men, their lives. He also lies to King Achish and raided Israel's enemies while pretending to serve Achish. Look at Look back at at chapter 27, verses 8 through 10. David and his men went up, and they raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region uh, through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. When he came back to Achish... 
who inquired, where did you raid today? David replied, the south country of Judah, the south country of the Jeromelites, or the south country of the Kenites. So David isn't exactly acting with great integrity, but you know he thinks he's doing what's best for his people. But he's, he, he's doing all of this, and he's going to find out pretty quickly that they are not immune to problems themselves, that he and his men and their families are not immune to problems. So have that in your mind, what he's been doing, raiding these places, killing everybody, all right? And then he's lying about it on top of that. First um, Samuel 30, now we get to chapter 30, verse 3. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. So they're going back home to their, their, their wives, their children. But when they, he's been doing all this raiding before this, they get back to the town they had been staying in and they find it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahonoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. So they've kidnapped all of the women and children here. When they return, they get back to Ziklag, their, their wives, they find the city burned, their kids are gone, their wives are gone. And verse 4 says appropriately that David and his troop, they wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. But you can imagine the crushing grief when they get back, their wives and their kids are gone. They've been kidnapped. They don't know if they're alive or dead. They assume that they're dead. Again, remember, what did David do when he raided these towns? Killed everybody. So they can assume they're probably dead, and so they don't know. But they grieve. They weep loudly, and you can imagine that they would. David had led his men to do a lot of things up to this point, and now he's going to have to lead them in their grief, which is not going to be an easy task because he's grieving himself. But he has to lead. He has to continue. City was burned, everything of value has been stolen, women and children kidnapped. It was the mercy of God alone that the Amalekites didn't kill the women and the children. Because, again, David had done that in his raids. You go back to 1 Samuel 27, 11, David did not let a man or a woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us, this is what David did. This was David's custom. During the whole time he stayed with the Philistine in the Philistine territory. But the, the, the men, the verse tells us, wear themselves out grieving until they can't weep anymore. David was distressed. That literally means, yes, he's hurt, he's grieving. But it literally means he's pressed into a tight corner. Because you can, you can see the scene unfolding, right? He led them in those raids. The Amalekites are taking revenge. And so pretty soon he's going to be the one to blame. He is. They're going to blame him. You did this to us. So he's in a pretty tight spot. He's got to figure out a way to lead in the middle of, can we all agree, a pretty big mess. A pretty tough situation. David's got to lead. You know, some problems are self-induced. Some things we bring on ourselves. Still a problem. We still got to work through it. We got to trust in God. Repent if there's sin that's caused that. Sometimes... We're in the middle of a bad situation, and it's not our fault. Sometimes we find ourselves in messes, and you didn't do anything wrong, okay? 
That happens. That's life. We live in a sinful, broken world. Pain and suffering happen, sometimes because we do it to ourselves, many times because we've done nothing. But we still have to choose how we're going to respond. What's going to be our reaction in the midst of that difficult situation? You grieve, you cry, just like David's men did, but then you got to make a decision about moving forward and how you're going to move forward. David was earning his Ph.D. in godly rule the hard way. God was preparing him to lead a nation. And he's about to learn some really tough lessons, which is where he learns that God's road may never be the easy road. It just may not. Many times, most times, it's not. Narrow is the road, right? Uh, Sometimes it's difficult. Different people react in different ways circumstances in different ways to the same circumstances and I've heard it said that that life what life does to us depends on what life finds in us because in those tight spots those difficult circumstances whatever's in is going to come out and so it depends on how prepared we are how close to the Lord we are as to how we'll respond in difficult circumstances you know if David were president We would say his approval ratings are pretty low at this point. His men are not happy. Matter of fact, they want to stone him. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David was in an extremely difficult position. I would say so. Because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But this is a key phrase. Don't miss this. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Remember, David, with all his faults, he is a man after God's own heart. He could have turned to a lot of different sources. He was pretty powerful. He had a lot of men there. They weren't happy with him at that point, but they had had a lot of victories. But instead of turning to his own strength or his own ability or relying on his own laws, and he had many at this point, a lot of victories in battle, he focuses on the Lord. He turns to his Lord, and these men that David had successfully led since four of them joined him in the cave of Agilom in 1 Samuel 22. They find themselves worse off than they were before they had, before they had attached themselves to him. They're in a bad situation. All of the success that David experienced was undone by this one huge disaster, at least in this moment, and they were bitter. And bitterness usually turns to blame. And that's exactly what they did. They begin to blame David. Forget that he's God's next king. Forget that, forget that there's a future here. Forget all of, all of what they had experienced with him. They begin to blame him. You can't really blame them. I mean, you know, it's a natural response. But, but what good would it have done to seek revenge on David? What good would stoning David do, wrecking the future of the nation of Israel, what good would that have done? You can understand why they felt that way. But they turn on their leader. Imagine being David in this moment. You've got Saul chasing you, very powerful man, and now the men that you're leading want you dead. So he, yes, he's in a corner. He's in a tight spot. But their plan to stone him would not come to fruition. What they didn't realize was that they needed their leader now more than they ever had. They're going to need him to lead them into battle. David dying would not solve their problems. 
So what does David do? David turns to God and he finds strength in him. We see in verse 6. Now where do you think he might have learned that in a really difficult circumstances, when the odds are stacked against him, to trust in the Lord his God? Where do you think one place he would have learned this? Many places, but what, what's one situation that stands out? Against Goliath, right? He had experienced God overcome insurmountable odds before, but he had trusted in God. We have a hard time doing that. And, you know, when you think about the story of David and Goliath, those Goliath, a giant, represents problems in our life, trials, tribulations, circumstances. These are things that we would call the giants of our life, right? Those things that seem like it's impossible to overcome. So I want to help you think about how to view those things this morning. We've got two uh, poster board cutouts here, okay? And on one says you. The other says giants. These are the problems, the trials that we face. Now, which one looks bigger? The giants look bigger, right? If you are facing the giants in your life by yourself, those giants are going to look huge. Those giants are going to look like you cannot defeat them, that there is nothing that you can do. And guess what? You're right. (laughs) You can't defeat those giants on your own. However, if you focus on God instead of you facing your giants alone, now which one looks bigger? Hmm? Shout it out. (laughs) Right. Well, guess what? These are pretty much the same size. I know I don't compare to Jack Kelly, but y'all just bear with me, okay? (laughs) I'm doing the best I can. These are pretty much the same size. It's just an optical illusion, right? I tested it on my kids last night to make sure it worked. But it does say something about perspective, doesn't it? And it says something about what we choose to focus on. If I'm focused on that giant in front of me and I'm sitting there thinking, there is no way I can do this. I can't make this on my own. I can't survive this on my own. There is nothing I'm going to be able to see. That giant is going to look huge. It's going to look bigger than it actually is because I don't have the perspective and I certainly don't have the strength to defeat that giant, that problem, that situation on my own. But David teaches us something very important, both when he faces Goliath and right here in this situation. His own men want him dead, and what does he do? He doesn't turn to his own strength. He focuses on the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. He believes in God's plan for his life. He knows that God has a plan that goes beyond that present circumstance. He knows that God is faithful, that God will fulfill that plan. So he knows deep down in his heart that even though a lot of people want him dead, God is going to preserve him, make him the next king. So he looks to God and he trusts in God and he seeks God's direction and how to handle this mess that he's in. David knew the encouragement that he needed would come from the Lord. He found strength in the Lord who had promised him he would be king. It was faith. David is displaying faith here. He orders uh, Abiathar or Abiathar, whichever way you choose to pronounce it, the priest, to bring the ephod. And together they sought the will of God. Look at verses 7 and 8. David said to the priest, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought, brought, the, brought it to him, and David asked the Lord, 
Should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? The Lord replied to him, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. So we don't know exactly how the ephod was used. We're not going to get into that this morning. But what we do know is that David used it to ask the Lord what to do. Should I pursue these raiders? Will I have victory over these raiders? And God answers and said, yes, pursue them. You will defeat them. David trusts God and he follows God. After he receives this assurance from God, he gathers his men and they take off to travel 16 miles to a brook that's called Besor, where 200 men had to stop. So they go these six, they're traveling these 16 miles, they come to a brook, they have to stop, and 200 men, now remember, they just marched 60 miles, okay? So, and now they've grieved till they can't grieve anymore. They're exhausted to begin with. They're traveling these 16 miles, and 200 men get to a point to where they say, we just can't go any further. So he's got 600 men, now he's going to be down to 400 men. Look at verse 9. David and the 600 men went with him. Uh, men with him went. They came to the Wadi Besor, which is the brook, where, the, where some stayed behind. David and 400 men continued the pursuit, while 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Besor. They had, just, again, just marked 60 miles. They're tired, so now, tired, so now 600 down to 400 are, are going to be facing probably a few thousand. All right, so the, the odds are still stacked against him. But God's told him, David, you're going to defeat them. You're going to have a success. God hadn't told them where to go yet, though. So they're, they're, they're traveling. David trusts God to lead them. He's looked to the Lord. And they find an Egyptian slave on the road who had been left by his Amalekite master, owner. And this is where we pick up in verse 11. David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. Then they gave, David, they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. After he ate, he revived, for he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, Who do you belong to? Where are you from? I'm an Egyptian, he says. The slave of an Amalekite man. My master abandoned me, and I got sick three days ago. So the guy gets too sick. The master says, you know what? You're not worth it. I'm leaving you here to die. We raided the south country of the Cherethites, the territory of Judah, and the south country of Caleb, and burned Ziklag. So they're the ones. He was part of this party. They find this slave, and hey, guess what? He just so happened to be with the guys that just did this to them. David then asked him, will you lead me to these raiders? So the slave says, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master, and I will lead you straight to him. You can, you can almost see him. Yeah, I'll lead. As long as you don't kill me, I'll take you. They abandoned me here to die. I'll tell you exactly where they are. What luck, huh? I use that facetiously. This is not luck. God's orchestrating this whole thing. You can see it unfolding. God's hand is all over this. So he led them, and there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, celebrating because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. They're having a huge party. David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. None of them escaped except 400 young men who got on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken 
He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and daughters, and all of the plunder the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, which were driven ahead of, uh, ahead of the other livestock, and the people shouted, this is David's plunder. Again, God's hands all over this. The slave could have died in the wilderness. They could have never found where the Amalekites were, but they just so happened to come on this, upon this slave. The slave leads them there. God says, you're going to have victory, and they do. Remember, David only had 400 men here, and there were a lot more of them, but they were vulnerable. They were drunk, for one, and scattered about. They weren't expecting this, and David takes them by surprise. There's no discipline with the Amalekites. They're scattered. They're drunk all over the place. David's men are disciplined. They're ready. And most importantly, God has strengthened them for the battle that they are about to face. So David and his men attack, take them by surprise, wipe them out, and he recovers all the wealth they had taken, and all the women and children are brought back alive. Not a single person is killed. This experience of David teaches us or helps us better understand how God helps his people when the road is tough and problems in our lives come. First, the Lord encouraged David so that he didn't despair, so that, but so that he would trust in him and the Lord to help him. You know, when you and I are faced with a crisis, we've got a choice to make. We can trust God or we can run away from him or we can, we can turn bitter because of the crisis. But when we face a crisis, we need the courage to face that crisis. And we can't blame others or pretend nothing's wrong. We need to face the crisis, face the reality, and trust in the Lord and lean on his strength to make it through that crisis. God also gave David wisdom to know what to do and the strength to do it. David goes to the Lord he asks him what to do. Should I pursue them or not? When you and I are, are faced, when we're in a situation that's similar, we need to do the same thing. We need to go to the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? Sometimes his answer is going to be, I want you to sit right here for now. And let me just be close to me. And one day at a time, you'll work through it. But David and his men were tired. They didn't have strength in themselves, but God strengthened them to face the challenges. The Lord also provided David with the facts he needed to find where the enemy was camping in the wilderness. He didn't know at first, but he steps out in faith. And you and I are going to have to step out in faith. We have to do it individually. We've got to do it together as a church. But when we step out in faith and trust the Lord, we can depend on him to tell us what we need to know, when we need to know it, and where we need to go, and what we need to do. Finally, God gave David and his men the strength they needed to defeat the enemy, not just for the journey there, but to defeat the enemy and recover the prisoners and all their wealth. If you and I trust in the Lord, hear me, if you trust in the Lord, he will always be faithful. Always. It may not work out the way you think it will. It's not going to be problem-free, but God will be faithful. Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. May not always be easy, but if we trust in him and we're faithful to him, it will always be the way he wants it. And the way he wants it, the way God wants it is best. Finally, we see this. God's man must never be for sale. 
So David and his men recover all this plunder, right? They recover their families. Remember, there's 200 guys back at the brook who couldn't make the journey. They're back watching the stuff while the, the rest of the men go forward. Arguably, watching the stuff by a brook is easier than fighting in battle. Can we agree? So these 400 guys, they go, they fight for a long time. They, they, they achieve victory, and they come back. And instead of sharing the wealth with the men who are back, we read that the corrupt and worthless, there were some in David's group, wanted to keep it for themselves. They win and they're like, hey, this is David's plunder. They get back and they're forced with making a decision to share it. And they're like, hey, wait a minute, I want it for myself. You didn't deserve this. You didn't earn this. Look at verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left at the Wadi Besor, they came out to meet him and to meet the truth. Should have been a celebration, right? All the women and children are back. When David approached the men, he greeted them. But all the corrupt and worthless men among those, they weren't all this way, but there were some, among those who had gone with David argued, because they didn't go with us, we will not give any of the plunder. We recovered to them except for each man's wife and child or children. They may take them and go. But remember, verse 20, this was David's spoil. He was the one who was supposed to decide how it was going to be distributed, not these corrupt and worthless men. Each of his fighting men received their part. And by the way, so did the 200 who were too tired to keep going. David's generosity bothered some of these guys. But that didn't deter David. He was determined to do what was right. His character was not for sale. Look at verse 23. David said, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed over to us the raiders who came against us. Who can agree with your proposal? He's really saying, guys, y'all are saying this is mine, but this isn't mine. This is God's. He determines how this goes. He's the one that gave us the victory. The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. David lays down rules. A rule, he says, that everybody gets an equal share. It doesn't matter if you went to fight or if you stayed back by the brook. Everybody gets an equal share. We can trust this is the way God wanted it. And David was not going to disobey, regardless of what the people said, regardless of what the troublemakers in the group said. And again, it was the Lord that gave them the, the victory. Nobody, none of them had a right to claim the spoils. They didn't earn those spoils. God gave them the victory. Scripture is clear, which is a lesson for all of us. Anything that you and I, as followers of Christ, have in life, we don't have a claim to it. The only reason we have it is because God has given it to us. It is His. My life is His. My possessions are His. And the hardest thing for me, listen, as a husband and father, my family is his too. And whatever he chooses to do, I have to trust him. And we have to depend on him from day to day to day. And we have to hold our things in life loosely because they belong to him. And these guys did not understand that. These corrupt didn't, but David did completely. He understood that the only reason they had this victory was because of God. And this is the logic of faith. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? 
mean, listen, those who stayed back had a job to do too. They were watching the stuff which made the rest of the guys travel and fighting easier. It was a, their job was easier, certainly, but they had a job to do. But here we see the principle of the parable in Matthew 20, right? The workers go out. Some work all day. Some work part of a day. Some work very little, but they all get paid the same. Verse 12 of Matthew 20, these last men put up one hour. People said, and you made them equal to us. Some are unhappy that they're all getting paid the same. You made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. And that's absolutely right. Grace is not about fairness. That's the lesson of that. They all get paid the same. All the men get the equal share. And God is teaching them something more important than stuff and victories. He's teaching them about grace. Grace is not about fairness. It's not about deserving anything. Grace is a gift that I do not earn. And again, the fact that we have grace at all, anything, is because it's a gift from God. They didn't earn these spoils. God had given them to them. No one had a greater claim to one piece or several pieces of wealth than others. They were supposed to share it equally. The kingdom of God is about a radical standard that says the least is the greatest and the greatest is the least. It isn't about fairness It's about grace. It's about humility. It's about submission. It's about servant service and love and putting others above myself. And what we see here is is sort of a sad picture of these guys fighting over the stuff while David takes a huge step into leadership. And, and, And if we're not careful, when life gets difficult... And life gets unfair, we can squabble over the, 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 the peripherals, we can get lost in the pain, blaming what's happening to me on somebody else, fighting with one another, and miss celebrating the victory that we have in Christ. These men were fighting instead of celebrating over the victory, and they almost missed it. 1979, I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, never really have been. You have to be amazed at the skill and ability and the science behind, you know, building those cars and the ability of the drivers. But I do know, uh, I believe it was the first nationally televised NASCAR race, 1979. Richard Petty won the race. But the way he won the race was, was amazing. He was 30 seconds behind the leader. In the race, he, went, he ended up winning Daytona 500, the biggest purse, the biggest amount to that date uh, for a NASCAR race. But again, he was behind Donnie Allison and Cale Yarbrough. Well, what happened was, at the end of the race, they're, they're coming around, they're, they're about to finish the race. Yarbrough tries to pass Allison. Allison ends up drifting and forcing Yarbrough into the infield grass. Yarbrough gets mad. He comes out. He pulls his car back onto the track. He catches up with Allison and forces him into the wall. But it doesn't stop there. Donnie's brother Bobby ends up pulling up and getting into a fist fight with Kale Yarbrough. All this is going on. And you can see it. You can look it up on YouTube. There's a video. All this, this huge fight's going on. These three guys are fighting. But guess where Richard Petty is? He's celebrating a victory. He just won this huge amount. And it's a huge amount now, but even more than $73,500. 
30 seconds behind the leader. They get into it. He just sails right on into victory. He's celebrating a victory while these guys are duking it out over on the side. It's a great picture of what we just read here. These guys are fighting over stuff instead of celebrating a victory. We'll miss the victory. We'll miss the celebration if we get caught up in the pain, if we get caught up in the difficulties. And listen, it's difficult sometimes, and it hurts sometimes, but we have reason to celebrate the victory. David's men are fighting over stuff. When David steps to the front of the pack, he takes the lead, and he shows that God's number one man is a man of character and a man of grace. In the toughest of times, God's people maintain character and they don't lose sight of grace. The grace they've received and the grace that we should show to others. None of us are perfect. None of us deserve to be saved. In God's eyes, we are all equally sinful And we have received grace upon grace upon grace. How dare we not show grace to others? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the grace that we have received. The salvation that you have provided through your son, Jesus Christ. None of us deserve that. None of us could ever earn that. We can never be good enough. Even if we compare our sins to others and say, hey, we're not as bad as that person. You look at sin and all you see is the sin. Your standard is perfection, holiness, righteousness. You cannot allow any sin into your presence or else you would not be holy and perfect and righteous. We could not get rid of that. None of us are perfect and you provided a way to remove that sin. Jesus Christ, you became God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. You lived a perfect life. You made the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. You were buried. and You were raised from the dead three days later so that we could have forgiveness of sin and and victory over death. And if we put our faith and trust in you, we can be saved and set free from sin and we can be confident in the future that you have planned for us in this life and in eternity with you in heaven. But life is difficult and it is hard at times and we face challenges and hardships. But in it all and through it all, if we will trust in you, you will give us the strength we need to face the the trials, the difficulties, the giants in our life. If we maintain our focus and depend on you and obey you, even when it's hard, you will prove faithful. Give us the strength and the faith that we need to trust you and to move forward. Give us the strength that we need to fight the battles that we face from day to day, together as your body. Lord, protect your body. Protect your church. Help us all to focus on you and to be united in your presence and by your spirit. Lord, thank you for your grace. Give us the ability to show grace to others. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?